Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, the book of Hosea, chapters 11 and 12. Well, we ended our previous lesson with verses 3 and 4 of Hosea chapter 11. Now, in this most poetic chapter of Hosea, we have God, through the agency of his faithful prophet Hosea, expressing both his passionate love for his set-apart people, but also his heartbreaking decision to have to punish Israel for their determined idolatry and their lack of faith. Now I want to repeat something I said to begin our study of chapter 11. We must be most careful in our assessment of these words that we not ascribe to Jehovah God of Israel, the typical spectrum of human emotion. Only humans have these particular emotions and God is not a human. However, there are limited ways for a biblical writer to describe God's attitude and orientation towards Israel. So the regular use of human emotion vocabulary, vocabulary terms like, like angry or sad are used because that's all that's available to us. We could, I suppose, invent new vocabulary words that, that are meant to express how God uniquely thinks about things. But they'd have no meaning to us if we can't identify with them. And the way we identify with those words can only be through personal experience, something we can't have since we're not God. Bottom line, take these emotions that are ascribed to God in human terms with a grain of salt and certainly not precisely literal. In fact, in verse 9, verse 9, God specifically addresses this issue. When despite all the good and just reasons he ought to simply destroy Israel, he chooses not to. And he says, this is because for God I am and not man. Now, since this 11th chapter of Hosea is, is quite short, let's reread it all, all right, to begin today's study. So open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, Hosea chapter 11, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more the prophets called them, the farther they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and offered incense to idols. Yes, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. They didn't know that it was I who was healing them, who was guiding them on through human means with reins made of love. With them, I was like, someone removing the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to feed them. He will not return to the land of Egypt, but Asher will be his king, because they refused to repent. 
The sword will fall on his cities, destroying the bars of his gates, because they follow their own advice. My people are hanging in suspense about returning to me, and though they call them upwards, nobody makes a move. Ephraim, how can I give you up or surrender you, Israel? How could I treat you like Adma or make you like Zvoim? My heart recoils at the idea, as compassion warms within me. I will not give vent to the fierceness of my rage. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not a human being, the Holy One among you, so I will not come in fury. They will go after Adonai, who will roar like a lion, for he will roar, and the children will come trembling from the west. They will tremble like a bird as they come from Egypt, like a dove as they come from the land of Asher, and I will resettle them in their own houses. Now the first four verses, which we covered last time, essentially uh, stitch together. Ephraim, Israel's past sins, and Jehovah's acts of redemption towards them, to more or less save them from themselves. See, this is the foundational understanding that all of us must have about redemption. We too often think of our redemption as an act of being saved from God. But in fact, God is saving us from ourselves. Our own sinful nature necessarily results in our own self-destructive behavior. This is why a new nature is mandatory, if we are to be saved from ourselves. We are given the opportunity by God to first recognize our sin and then second to be rescued from it. How do we recognize our sin? How do we recognize it? By knowing the Torah, by knowing the law of Moses. This is the written document that specifically details what sin is. Then by being obedient to the terms of that document, that, that covenant, we can avoid sin and the destruction that it brings. But even so, as human creatures, we live with the uncomfortable reality that when through Christ we receive a new holy nature, it does not replace the old one. Those two natures reside side by side within us. It creates a, a tension between them. Paul speaks of this conundrum and of the irony that he is at once most joyful for this new nature, but also he is miserable because of this never-ending warfare between it and the old one that continues to seek to dominate him. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit are we able to resist the destructive ways of our old nature and follow our new one, although we are going to stumble at times along the way. Now because Israel had forgotten the Torah and the Law of Moses, they turned to the instincts of their fallen nature. 
So they began to worship the gods of their neighbors. They truly believed they were doing a good thing. But they believed what they were doing was good because they didn't know the truth. And this because they didn't seek the truth. Rather, they relied on their kings and on their religious authorities that had fashioned this new hybridized religion, combining elements of their traditional Hebrew faith along with Baal worship. God says he had sent many prophets to warn them of what they were doing, but the more he called to Ephraim to turn and to repent, the more they went the other direction. Now Hosea is here not to beg Israel to change, as had the previous prophets, but rather to announce that God's punishment is upon them, and that no amount of their repentance at this point would dissuade the Lord from this path because they had done it for far too long. Now believers, pay attention. This is a God pattern, and we have seen it since the Garden of Eden, and it's going to continue until there is a new heavens and earth. Jesus did not change this pattern. If we don't seek the truth, if we don't obey the truth, you know, we can sincerely believe, but we can believe wrongly. The truth does not exist in man-made doctrines, and it also does not exist in our personal convictions, whether to the church or to the synagogue, but rather as we find it in the Torah, the Law of Moses, and all of Holy Scripture. Now verse 5 contrasts Israel's wonderful beginnings with its dangerous and its tragic current situation. Now I find that nearly every English Bible translation misses the mark with this verse. And it is apparent simply because the way it is most often translated, it's at odds with the rest of the context provided within the book of Hosea. So, in verse 5, most English versions have it much like the complete, complete Jewish Bible has it. it. says, He will not return to the land of Egypt, but Asher will be his king because they refuse to repent. This translation cannot be correct, because one of the underlying themes of Hosea is that God is reversing Israel's redemption history and is, metaphorically speaking, returning them to captivity in Egypt. Now, rather, nearly all Christian Bible editors have essentially moved the Hebrew word for no, which is lo, from its place as the very first word of this verse. That's where it appears. It's the first word. It begins, this verse begins lo which is no. And they've moved it to where it instead it modifies the word return, not return, no return. In other words, the word no is meant to stand alone. It's in order to counter Ephraim's unwarranted charge against God 
that he engaged in smother love against his people. He put an unbearable yoke upon them in the form of the Law of Moses in order to control them. So a better rendering is that found in the, the new JPS version of the verse, where it, sa it says, No, they returned to Egypt, and Assyria is their king because they refused to repent. This returns the proper alignment of the meaning to the overall context of Hosea, and it restores the original Hebrew word order. God's verdict against Ephraim is that He is returning them to Egypt. Now again, this is a metaphor for captivity and oppression. And this new captivity will be at the hand of the king of Assyria. Why is this happening? Israel refused to repent. Now, what would that repentance have consisted of? Returning to the Law of Moses, shunning all other man-made rules and religions, returning to a slightly better, slightly less pagan religion that still consisted of mixing doctrines and traditions with scriptural truth, that was not going to be enough. Besides, that option of repentance <laughs> This is now a thing of the past. The door to their redemption had been slammed shut, at least for a very long time. God's overriding love has its limits, and at times He must take severe action. Now verse 6 provides us with yet another problematic interpretation. As we've read it in the complete Jewish Bible, this verse is more usually translated as about Assyria descending upon Israel with swords, in other words, their militaries attacking. And in so doing, they attack Israel's cities, they tear down the gates of their walled cities, and they overwhelm Israel because of Israel's foolish political policies of making alliances with Gentile nations. However, an equally good argument can be made for translating verse 6 this way, A sword shall descend upon their skins, and consume their limbs, and devour their bones. Now, the idea is of a siege upon Israel's cities that results in the starvation of their citizens, which results in them eating strips of their own skin. Now, I could make a case for either interpretation, so I'm not going to ask you to prefer one over the other. The point we can take from either of these interpretations is that far from the alliances of peace that Israel is madly dashing about hoping to construct to avoid being conquered, what's going to happen is they're going to be invaded by Assyria and suffer all the horrific deprivations that result from the siege warfare that was common to that era. Now verse 11, or rather verse 7, excuse me, verse 7, allows me to detour just momentarily to instruct you about something that is quite relevant to our understanding of this section of Hosea, this section of Hosea. 
In Hebrew synagogue tradition, the Torah is divided into 50 portions called parashot. And these portions, parashot, are read in order at Jewish synagogues during an annual 50 week cycle. Every synagogue in the world is reading the same portion on the same week and day. Part of each parsha is what is called the Haftarah. The Haftarah. It is the Haftarah is additional scripture reading that includes words from the prophets. What most Jews don't know is that while among all the Jewish sects there is unanimous agreement on the order and the week of the year in which which each parashas read, that is not necessarily so with the Haftarah reading that's part of it. In the Sephardic tradition, Hosea 11.7 through Hosea 12.2 is read on the Torah portion called Vayese. In the Ashkenazic tradition, it's read as part of the following week's Torah portion. But the thing we need to understand is this. It is that the Hebrews of yesteryear that ordered the portions all recognized that Hosea 11 verse 7 through Hosea 12 verse 12 forms a cohesive unit of thought. That is, it can be kind of set apart as a group of verses and understood as projecting a common underlying theme. Therefore it means that to properly interpret each verse within that unit, then each must be taken within the overall context of the whole. And the whole is Hosea 11.7 through 12.12. It is with that underlying understanding that we're going to study the next several verses of Hosea, which will cross over even into the next chapter of Hosea. Uh, Hosea chapter 12. Now one of the many difficult verses in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7 may well be the most challenging. In fact, most ancient Hebrew language scholars admit that those words used are so obscure and, and very probably are meant mostly as expressions of that era the meaning of which we have no good idea. That whatever interpretation we decide upon, we need to hold it very lightly. Rather than, than explaining the many literary difficulties and the consequent possibilities, I think we can boil it down to two directions that this verse could take. The first direction can be paraphrased in this way. Then my people will tire of turning away from me, and on the Most High they will call. All together they will surely exalt Him. But the second direction can be paraphrased, paraphrased this way, For my people persists in its defection from me, and when it, meaning Israel, is summoned upward, it, meaning Israel, 
does not rise at all. So, the first direction is that this verse represents a transition of sorts from Israel's determined apostasy to a future time when after a long period of exile as punishment, God will renew His covenant with them and take them back into His fold. In the context of Hosea it means that Israel will finally tire of trying to do things their own way. They will shuck off their hybridized religion and return to the God of Israel in the pure ways of the Law of Moses. But the second direction, the second direction simply amplifies the reasoning behind God's choice of severe chastisement for Israel. They won't stop their sinning, which amounts to their defection from the allegiance to their covenant with Jehovah. God summons Ephraim Israel upwards, in other words, towards heaven, towards righteousness through the message of the prophets, but Israel as a whole refuses to obey the summons. There is no thought included that speaks of a future reconciliation. Which of these two options is correct? I cannot say with enough assurance to recommend one over the other. <clears throat> verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. Now, verse 8 is one of the most poetic in the entire book of Hosea, and also probably the most shocking. God has made known Israel's guilt, what their crimes against him deserve, and what he intends to do to them. Here in verse 8, however, is this sudden shift to hope, but only following the full measure of Israel's punishment. The fact that there is an after means that Ephraim Israel will not bear full and final destruction as they ought to and has been threatened. Now, remembering what I said to begin today's study, that we must not take some of these words of human emotion apply them apply them literally to God. So figuratively speaking, what we are reading is God having an inner struggle, an inner struggle, a struggle within Himself in determining what Israel's bad behavior means He ought to do to them, versus what His love for Israel prevents Him from doing. What we have here is precisely what was predicted, what was set down in the Torah and the book of Deuteronomy hundreds of years before Hosea's time. We find it in Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 to 31. It says this, When you've had children and grandchildren, lived a long time in the land, become corrupt and made carved images, a representation of something, and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai your God and provoked him, I call on the sky and the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days there, but will be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples, among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away, you will be left few in number. 
There you will serve gods, which are the product of human hands, made of wood and stone, which can't see or hear or eat or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai, your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and being. In your distress, when all of these things have come upon you, in the Acharit Hayamim, the world to come, you will return to Adonai your God and listen to what he says. For Adonai your God is a merciful God. He will not fail you, he will not destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them. Now what we have been seeing demonstrated by going back, examining the Torah, is that God is not impulsive, He's not frivolous, He doesn't make it up as He goes. Over time He lays down principles, never revoking any, and then follows those principles Himself, because <laughs> these principles define His very nature. Thus when we read in the Scriptures about how our future and this, this modern world is going to play out as we approach and we enter into the end times. We can know from the perfection of how God has laid down these principles and followed them in the past, it's going to happen again the same way. If there are two principles that we simply must take to heart, that are given to us in the book of Hosea, they are first, repent now. Because at some unknown point that opportunity will have permanently passed. And second, prepare, prepare, prepare. Real, tangible, practical preparedness. Over and over God pled with those who worship Him to prepare for what was on the horizon and was headed towards them at breakneck speed. Only a precious few paid heed. Now believers, again I caution you, prepare. Your faith will save your eternal soul, but that alone will not shelter you from disaster in this life. Prepare your hearts, but also prepare your pantries. Prepare for when you will have no one to trust for your and your family's safety and their well-being but yourselves. It's coming. Israel took the continual chaos that they had descended into, into in, in stride because they had become used to it as it evolved into the new normal. They grew deaf to God's call through His prophets to repent, to prepare. They'd just grown numb to it. Don't put yourself or your family in that position. You don't have to. And men, let me tell you something, this responsibility falls directly upon you, not on your wives, not on your children. 
certainly not on your local government agencies or charities. Now, I don't know how much time you have, how much time we all have, but the supersonic rate at which the world operates today, the drastic changes that happen in hours, well, man, it ought to be apparent if you've been living on this planet in recent times. Prayer is a good place to start. It ought to be a short one. Preparation is not rocket science. Experts are not required. It's also not the exercise of religion. It is awareness, it is common sense, it is diligence. Actively and purposely make a plan and start carrying it out. Now, right now. Well, Jehovah determined that Ephraim Israel had come to its end as a nation, a nation that had resided for centuries now in the Promised Land. But that was not to be the end of God's people. And as I have established in er earlier lessons, According to the Torah, a father that has been treated in such a way as Israel has treated their father, Jehovah God, that father is entitled to execute that child. But this holy father has decided instead to apply amnesty to his rebellious child. This is expressed with a series of rhetorical questions followed by a concrete answer. How, God asks himself, how is he to give up on his beloved Ephraim Israel? How? How can he surrender Israel to destruction? How can he do that to them, the same thing as what he did to Adma and Zeboim. Now, Adma and Zeboim were obliterated by God along with Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, they suffered total, final destruction. Bottom line, God just can't bring himself to do to Ephraim Israel what their behavior indicates he should do. As is stated to close out this verse, the reason he is making this choice is, one, he had a change of heart, and two, instead of wrathful anger, he is feeling empathy towards Israel. The Lord always wants to win back those of his who have gone astray, but only as much as it's up to him. But in the end, it's the human will that's going to decide if any of that's possible. Now, verse 9 continues the same theme as verse 8. Jehovah is well within his rights to exterminate Israel. In fact, this right was called out and predicted in the Torah. However, he won't do this. He won't lay upon Ephraim Israel the full weight of his wrath that if done would annihilate the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, they would never exist in any form again. Rather, because of his grace, he will, at some future point, restore Israel. Now note to those Christians 
that think that grace was a New Testament innovation. Grace has always been part of God's character. Nothing could describe, describe grace better than the Lord deciding in His mercy not to give Israel what they rightly deserved. But even more, they're going to do nothing, nothing to earn that mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Why is Jehovah doing this? Well, first and foremost, says verse 9, he's not one of them. He's not an Israelite. The God of the Israel is not an Israelite. He isn't a human being. Now, a human being would, in the same situation, make a different choice. Because our emotions are arbitrary. We can seek revenge as a form of justice. But, says Jehovah, he's God. So he is able to set aside his anger in favor of his amnesty. Now, when we read that God says he is the Holy One among you, the word for holy is Kodesh. And it means set apart, it means something unique, different than all the rest. So when we call God holy, we are saying that he is one of one. He is not one of us. Now, didn't Israel already understand that? Nope. Because in the pagan thinking they had adopted, in the Baal god systems, the gods mostly were humans, much like the pagans that worshipped them. The gods were more or less one of the people that lorded over. They were just better and more powerful. So Israel wasn't to think of Jehovah as one of them, only better. God was and is a whole other being. And so he processes information and makes his decisions quite differently than the way we human beings do. In fact, one of the things that the Bible teaches us, Old and New Testaments, is that if we truly want to emulate God, we must curb our tendency towards anger. This begins with the determination not to abuse other human beings. Rather, for those who want to be most godlike, it is abounding love that ought to be demonstrated. Now, do not take this to validate the Christian mantra that God has only one attribute, love, because this is wrong on every level. But in, he makes his decisions based on love and not anger, even though he gets, metaphorically speaking, angry. Now, if I may, I'd like to take this opportunity to address another attribute of God that belongs to God alone. In 1 Samuel, we read this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 28 and 29. Shmuel, that's uh, Samuel, said to him, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today and has given it to a fellow countryman of yours who is better than you. Moreover, the Eternal One of Israel will not lie. He will not change his mind because he is not a mere human being subject to changing his mind. 
So God didn't change his mind by first deciding to destroy Israel and later on deciding not to. See, if anything, this series of passages is meant to show us just how different from human beings God is. The good news for Israel is they will have a future, despite all this that's about to happen to them. What they don't know, of course, is that it's going to be more than a hundred generations before this future restoration begins to take shape. Now, verse 10 explains at a far view just how this restoration is going to take place. Metaphorically speaking, Jehovah will roar like a lion, and the ten tribes of the northern uh, tribes, the north rather, northern kingdom, will respond to his call. And when he calls, the ten tribes will hurry to come home from the west. Now, for Israel, the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and beyond that. God Himself will be the one that announces their return. A very similar thought for this return is spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 27:13. On that great day, a great shofar will sound. Those lost in the land of Asher will come home, also those scattered throughout the land of Egypt, and they will worship Adonai on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Now the Hosea and the Isaiah passages are speaking of the same event, they're just using different metaphors. In Hosea, it's the roar of a lion. In Isaiah, it's the sound of a shofar. Now, this is a good reminder we mustn't take these metaphors and analogies as literal. Now, I personally doubt we'll hear the ominous roar of a lion or the shrill sound of a shofar coming from heaven. Rather, whatever that call to Israel to come home is like, I think it's happening right now. Right now. As evidenced by many from the ten lost tribes having returned to Israel, and there's more on the way. Now, I suspect it's more of a strong and irresistible inner calling to come, to be an obedient servant to Jehovah than it is some kind of an external alarm. But I can't be certain of that. And then verse 11 makes it clear that the call to come home will indeed be home to the land that Israel left. Not another home. Flying away like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from Assyria, are once again metaphors. Of course, it is quite striking that the nearly exclusive method the Ten Lost Tribes are returning home today is flying on an airplane. And we must be aware that the flying like a bird from Egypt is not meant as a location. Egypt is a location. It's not meant that way, but rather as a symbol of returning from captivity. But from Assyria is meant as a geographic location. Now that we know the geographic locations of most of the descendants of the Ten Tribes, at least those who retain their tribal identities, then we must also understand that while the Assyrian Empire obviously no longer exists, indeed those former nations of the empire 
are from where many of these exiled tribes have been found and from which they are returning home. Now, I think important for our purposes today is that this prophesied return of the Northern Kingdom, folks, it's underway. And it signals that an entire new chapter of world history and of redemption history has begun. That's pretty exciting stuff. We're alive for it. What an amazing privilege. And according to the Bible, what comes next, when this starts to happen, is rapidly increasing tribulations and terrors around the globe all of them at the hands of evil men, and also an exponential increase in wickedness among pagans, and also an increased apostasy among God's worshipers. Now you decide for yourself if that is what you are witnessing in this, the 21st century. All right, let's move on to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. Reopen your Bibles. We're going to read Hosea chapter 12, all of it. It's a short chapter. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah still rules with God and is faithful with holy ones. Ephraim is chasing the wind, pursuing the wind from the east. All day he piles up lies, desolation. They make a covenant with Asher while sending olive oil to Egypt. Adonai also has a grievance against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and pay him back for his misdeeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. In the strength of his manhood, he fought with God. Yes, he fought with an angel and won. He wept, he pleaded with him. Then at Bethel, he found him. And there he would later speak with us. Adonai Elohe Sevaot. Adonai is his name. So you return to your God. Hold fast to grace and to justice. Always put your hope in your God. A huckster keeps false scales, and he loves to cheat. Ephraim says, oh, I've gotten so rich. I've made me a fortune. And in all my prophets, no one will find anything wrong or sinful. But I'm Adonai, your God, from the land of Egypt. Again, I will make you live in tents as in the days of the established festival. I have spoken to the prophets. It was I who gave vision after vision. Through the prophets I gave examples to show what it would all be like. Is Gilead given to iniquity? Yes, they become worthless. Is Gilgal they, sac in Gilgal they sacrifice to bulls? Therefore their altars are like piles of stones in a plowed field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, there Israel slave to win a wife. For a wife he tended sheep. By a prophet Adonai brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was protected. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the penalty for his bloodshed will be thrown down upon him, and his Lord will repay him for his insult. Now, <clears throat> please be aware that in some Bibles, what appears as the first verse of Hosea chapter 12 is placed as the final verse, in other words, the 12th verse of chapter 11. 
It doesn't alter anything about the meaning. All chapter markings are insertions made about a thousand years ago, and they're rather arbitrary. And they were never in the original biblical texts. And as with chapter 11, chapter 12 is full of difficulties and challenges, and the opening verse is no exception. Now, let's remember that the Torah portion Haftarah uses Hosea 11.7 through Hosea 12.12 as a coherent literary unit that embodies a common context. This is key. So as we move from chapter 11 to chapter 12, we need to keep this close relationship between the ending of chapter 11 and most of chapter 12 as we determine how to extract meaning. Now the opening words are pretty straightforward. The indictment against Israel is described as treachery and deceit. What gets quite interesting is that second half of the verse. Now the traditional way of understanding this among Christian academia is as we read it in the complete Jewish Bible. It says that Judah still rules with God and is faithful with holy ones, although exactly what that means isn't particularly clear. Now the Hebrew view on this passage has been historically quite different. Here is the Jewish Publication Society interpretation that fairly well reflects the more typical Hebrew take on this verse. And Judah is yet wayward towards God and towards the Holy One who is faithful. This is a rather substantial, if not an opposite, understanding of Judah's condition from the Christian interpretation of it. Now in the Christian view, Judah is depicted as faithful, as are the Holy Ones, probably meaning the righteous among the Judeans. In the Hebrew view, Judah is not faithful, but the Holy One, God, is. However, even before that is the issue of whether the word Judah even belongs there. The book of Hosea is about who? Ephraim Israel. The northern kingdom. It's not about Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, although we've dealt with this before, I'm going to briefly address it again. There are a couple of aspects to consider. There's about a dozen or so insertions of the word Judah in the book of Hosea. And many of the modern scholars who study ancient biblical Hebrew, not the current Hebrew dialects, insist that these mentions of Judah were glosses added by later Jewish editors, probably not too long after the ten tribes were exiled by Syria. And this was done in order to warn Judeans that if they don't straighten up and fly right, this same scenario that happened to their Israelite brothers could also happen to them. But a second possibility is also at least as likely. There was a misunderstanding of an abbreviation that was used in the 8th century BC that led later Hebrew Bible scholars to think it meant Judah. Now the abbreviation that I'm speaking of concerns the Hebrew letter Yod. Now the Yod is 
which is expressed as a Y in the English alphabet, is the first letter of the Hebrew word Israel. It's also the first letter of the Hebrew word Yudah. It is more and more agreed among Semitic language scholars that in the 8th century BC it became practice in the north of the Promised Land to abbreviate the word Yisrael by only using a yod, one single letter. This practice was likely not used in the south. However, since the yod is also the first letter of the word Yudah, and then later after Ezra, Ephraim Israel's exile, some Jewish, some Judean Bible scholars misunderstood and thought that the Yod was an abbreviation not for Israel, but rather for Judah. Now I'm not sure which scenario best accounts for the insertion of the word Judah here, but either way it just doesn't seem to belong. Now I'm going to cut to the chase rather than continue on with the technical language aspects. I'm going to give you a translation of verse 1 that may seem very odd to your ears at first, but as we continue through more verses of Hosea chapter 12, it begins to become more plausible. This is the way that Mayer Gruber has worded it. And Israel is devoted with respect to El and with respect to angels is loyal. That doesn't sound anything like what have in your Bible, is it? Nothing like it. Okay. Now, for even some of you who are rather advanced students that are following along, this is going to seem strange because it's so at odds with any traditional translation. But with some further explanation, I think I can build a case for it. And I'm going to preview it by saying this. What I think we have here is Hosea reprimanding Israel for their worship of an angel. An angel that is called Bethel, and also the angel of Bethel, and one time it's even simply even called El. Now it's known in Jewish history that angel worship became an issue in ancient times for Israel, although in exactly what ways is a little less clear. And when we read in the Old Testament of the fearsome appearance of some angels and the things they could do, well, it shouldn't be all that much of a reach for us to understand how some of primitive Israel could have overreacted and given divine status to angels such that they actually went so far as to worship them. Now listen, please, to this interesting exchange between Jacob and this angel of Bethel as we find it in Genesis chapter 31. In Genesis chapter 31, in verses 10 through 13, we hear this. Once, when the animals were mating, I had a dream. And I looked up, and there in front of me the male goats, which mated with the females, were streaked, speckled, and mottled. Then in a dream the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, Here I am. And he continued, Raise your eyes now and look. All the male goats mating with the females are streaked, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen everything Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, 
where you anointed a standing stone with oil, where you vowed your vow to be. Now, get up, get out of this land, return to the land where you were born. Now, I want you to notice with this. Notice how Jacob says in his dream, an angel of God is who spoke to him. An angel of God. And then this angel of God says to Jacob, I'm the God of Bethel. Whoa, that's very strange. So, is this an angel, as we think of an angel, or is this God? Well, now listen to this verse from the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 48.13. Moab will be disappointed by Kemosh, then, just as the house of Israel was disappointed by Bethel, a god in whom they had put their trust. Whoa. I want to be clear. This verse says that the nation of Moab will be disappointed by their worship of Chemosh, that's their national god, which of course is no god at all, just as the house of Israel was disappointed by a god named Bethel in whom they'd put their trust. To put their trust meant Israel showed devotion in the form of worship to this god named Bethel. In the Genesis 31 passage, the Hebrew says that the angel that spoke to Jacob said that he was, in, now this is in Hebrew, the El of Bethel. The word found in this same passage for angel is Malach, that's the standard Hebrew word for angel, it just, but it literally means messenger. So in the case of Genesis 31, the words Malach and El become virtually synonymous. El is most typically translated to English as God, and that isn't necessarily wrong, except that as with so many languages, Hebrew included, words within a language can assume different meanings over long passages of time. Words can have double meanings, that the context they are presented in has to explain its use and words can be used as expressions that don't necessarily mean what they literally say word for word. So since Bethel is a place name, but it's also the name of an angel, and this angel is also called El, it opens up all sorts of fascinating questions. And since in Hosea chapter 11 there is much reference to who? To the patriarch Jacob and his personal history. It seems logical that this opening verse of chapter 12 is probably also connected, meant to be connected, with the person of Jacob and events that happened in his life. Now one other consideration before we move on to verse 2. This interesting connection with Jacob and this strange wording of verse 1 has caused some modern Christian scholars to wonder if the events of Jacob's life in Genesis influenced the book of Hosea, or did the book of Hosea, in this chapter concerning Jacob, influence the writer of Genesis? On its face, I cannot accept that the much later book of Hosea influenced the writer of Genesis. 
But many modern Christian scholars have tried to show that Genesis was actually written after the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC. So they would prefer it if it was Hosea influenced Genesis. Now I will say unequivocally that the concept that the Torah was written after the Babylonian exile is nonsense. It's nonsense of the highest order. So of course my position is that Hosea well knew the book of Genesis and the ancient stories, ancient even to Hosea, about Jacob, some of his strange encounters with angels, such as the one that he wrestled with and it dislocated Jacob's hip to end the fracas. The interaction of angels with humans was significant, especially in earlier parts of the Bible era. And very likely, these early Hebrews had to work it out for themselves as to exactly who these creatures were. What was their relationship with God and their place in the heavenly order? So to sum it up, verse 1 may well be speaking about the veneration that the people of Ephraim Israel had for an angel that appeared at Bethel or was named Bethel or both things were true. They worshiped this angel as though he was God, and this is what got them, one of the things, that got them into big trouble with Jehovah. Okay, we'll open up with verse 2 next time.